Slightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that's just about to go on that trip to England. We're close, Amanda. We're pinching some pennies, got some advertisers coming through for us. I mean, we're basically there. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, who knows? We might have another big life emergency that I, well, we need to use those funds for. If MeUndies comes through with the sponsorship, then we'll be fine. We can be in England in no time. We'll be having a pint in a London pub, eating a, I don't know, what's an English food? <laughs> eating a blood sausage. Shepherd's before, pie. Eating a shepherd's <laughs> pie before long. I had the weirdest craving for shepherd's pie a couple months ago. I think it was from British Bake Off. They Did they do it on Bake Off? But anyway, I just got the weirdest craving for one, and I, I didn't end up making it, and so maybe I'll have to revisit that soon. Oh man, that's like one of the the things that I make. I guess it's actually mine is more like cottagers pie because I don't use lamb. Yeah, I'm I'm hit and miss on lamb. Sometimes I love lamb, and then other times I've had it, and I'm like, yeah, it's a little too funky. It, I I'm hit and miss with with lamb. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll find out some uh, English delicacies today while we chat, I suppose, because we are here <laughs> the book club episode. If you're wondering why we're rambling about taking a trip to old Merry Old, right, Merry Old England, uh, that is because you found book club part two episode for the correspondence. It's a strange thing to describe. <laughs> it's a series yeah. of letters called 84 Charing Cross Road. This is, again, a book club part two. So if you missed the first episode, it's up in the podcast feed. Feel free to hit pause on this and go listen to that one first if you want to. Uh, book club episodes, for those who are unaware, are analytical deep dive episodes where we really dig into the text and analyze it in its you know entirety or hit the parts that we find interesting anyway. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook under that handle, and it's all one word, so just search for at the Lightly Literary Podcast, and you will find us there with updates and book promotions and such. I've been busy, too. I have not promoted in forever. I've been really slacking, because it just feels like every time I have that extra hour to maybe work on some drawings, I just am doing other things. So, anyway, but the podcast continues. We, we definitely... Per, um, push out the pod like regularly that's we're not taking stops there so even if the promotions slow down the feed will be updated and we're continuing on with the books so books matter the most right amanda that's right and that continues unabated um today we'll be spoiling the entirety of this book 84 Charing crossroad by helene humph so if you haven't read it yet and you're averse to spoilers again just hit pause go check out our book recommendation and come back when you've read it and if you don't care about spoilers then hey join us for a fun book discussion because we're here to talk about the whole thing analyze it and kind of give our final thoughts on it any content warnings i couldn't come up with any <sighs> nope uh someone no, dies but it's you know it's in letters so it's just not there's just no yeah, i don't know it's not like intense or grotesque or something it's like somewhat yeah anyway so yeah there's really yeah. none it's just sassy fun letters of people chatting <laughs> so. mm -hmm. okay well with that out of the way promotions all set we're good to go let's dive into this analysis shall we amanda yeah, let's do it. Let's do our 60-second summary challenge. This on Book Club episodes is always the first segment we do. Each of us will have 60 seconds on the clock to summarize the entirety of the work so far. Do you want to go first, Amanda, or shall I? Yeah, I'll do it first. Okay, so you're up first. It, it was your pick, so that seems only fitting that you'd take it on. Um, tell me when you're ready, and I'll hit start. I am ready. Okay, you can start right now. Go for it. 
Um, so we had um, Helen who was reaching out to buy books and she's developing her relationship with both Frank Dole and um, other members um, in the group. So we find out that Cecily, who was somebody who worked at the bookstore, has moved to uh, another country. Um, I think the Middle East and then I think Africa. And um, and then we have um, her relationship with uh, Frank developing. And Frank is um, uh, the, the war is better or the aftermath of the war is getting better. And Helen's job is um, changing because her job at the TV as a script writer has um, ended. And so she gets some kind of uh, like endowment or something like that uh, to do other things. Um, so she's still a writer and she promises to go to England, but she keeps coming up across like certain things um, in life, big things in life where she has to move Time. and stuff like that. Well, you Frank got there. The, the, the only part I was thinking of when you were speaking to summarize, you hit right at the end. Because I realized how little of this I remember. I remember more of a mood, more of an atmosphere. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as you were speaking, I was like, oh, no, I think I'm only going to say one thing. And then, you know, the rest is just <laughs> yeah, small details. Which is the very ending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at any rate, very well done. Okay, and I'll, I'll put my time around in a second and get mine started. Okay. Count myself down and start. Helene continues the correspondence with the English bookseller. They continue to debate various translations, and the English bookseller sends her a couple of duds. I think, like, uh, some Latin thing she really hates. So the usual charm is there about her disliking books. Career-wise, she definitely becomes more of a regular TV writer and gets some consistent money. She has to move at one point. She's, like, evicted and moves. But basically, small expenses keep adding up. She has a dental bill that takes her, like, a year to pay off, it seems. And so she just cannot make it over to England. Um, some friends of hers end up going over and they, you know, are very charmed by her friends and everything. But she herself does not go. That that was the one revelation I definitely wanted to hit in my summary is that she's never able to meet this man or the, the main bookseller. Uh, he ends up passing away in the end and she does continue to correspond with other people. The final letter is one from actually the correspondent's daughter who's an adult at that point. So there's a bit of an optimistic ending of hope maybe that they'll continue some friendship. But yeah, the main, main thing I wanted to hit, I'm just filling out my time at this point, was that she doesn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that as soon as that realization, I'm over time, by the way, but as soon as that realization kind of hit me, I really think that it took on such a melancholy feeling to me. And otherwise, yeah. the book is so funny and joyful and kind of fun. But I think um, spoiling a segment ahead, I'm very good at I'm very, you know, good, bad at doing that. <laughs> like I, whenever I have a thought, I immediately think of a later segment it would work perfectly for. But at any rate, I think that structurally this makes a lot of sense, the way the letters are used and ordered, because the fact that she keeps referencing the trip and then the trip never comes, that feels like the most purposeful organizational decision in the book. Uh, how often it comes up in the letters and then, of course, never never comes to fruition. But hopefully she met her other family. Anyway, those are our 60-second summaries. Not bad. And whatever small book details we left to the side, they're small book details. I don't remember them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. Uh, there's more references. Oh, Jane Austen! References to Jane Austen a couple yep. times. She finally gets one <laughs> over on fiction, and would you believe it, it's Jane Austen who does it. Can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just too perfect. Too I believe perfect. it. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, in the 50s, though, was there some, you know, anyway, I, I won't harp on it too much. It was harder to get access to good books back then, so as we will learned through this collection. Uh, let's do some quotes for clarification. This is always our next book club segment where we each pick a couple of quotes to discuss from the work, just interesting tidbits that we want to pick up on and analyze further. Throw a quote out there, Amanda. What do you want to discuss? Sure. Mine is uh, from the December 12th, 1952 letter. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just about the um, lasting power of, of books. Um, it looks too new and pristine ever to have been read by anyone else, but it has been. It keeps falling open at the most delightful places as the ghost of its former owner points me to things I've never read before. Um, and then it goes down and she'll say... Um, I do think it's a very uneven exchange of Christmas presents. You'll eat yours up in a week and have nothing left to show for it by New Year's Day. I'll have mine till the day I die and die happy in the knowledge that I'm leaving it behind for someone else to love. I shall sprinkle pale pencil marks through it, pointing out the best passages to some book lover yet unborn. I just thought that was like such a great sentiment and and really showcases how much um, Hanf really loves books and and also not just books but why she particularly is looking for secondhand books right, um, right where the she wants to feel that connection with previous owners for that that love it's like a it's a way of of connecting to humanity <laughs> in a way um and just share in that and luxuriate in in the fact that these books have been well loved and i just thought that that was so beautiful a sentiment and and um, and also, I enjoy secondhand bookstores for uh, many of the same reasons. <laughs> yeah, I still I know this came up in the first part. I'll just rehash my quick point on it. It's a very sweet view, but I find it to be. I, I just have never found one that was annotated in a very meaningful way where I like connect, you know, some straight underlines, highlights, maybe a word or two. But I just I don't know. I feel like all the secondhand books I get my hands on do not have really thoughtful, interesting notes in them. So it's it's like an idealized form of something I've never experienced. But maybe one day, maybe one day. I've got to mark up my own more thoroughly. So <laughs> maybe some other person, because I, I think my notes would be pretty inscrutable to an out to an outsider, to a person not in my brain. Well, that would be like kind of the fun part, though, right? Like if you write down like my notes tend to be um, fragments and maybe right, one right. word things. And it's kind of the fun of of like trying to decipher that as well. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I, I pulled the quote about her book philosophy, too, so let's dig into... This is a book for booksellers and book lovers, after all, so let's dig into her book philosophy. She has a couple of interesting thoughts here on page 54. Uh, this is from the September 18th, uh, 1952 letter. She says, I house clean my books every spring and throw out those I'm never going to read again like I throw out old clothes I'm never going to wear again. It shocks everybody. My friends are peculiar about books. They read all the bestsellers. They get through them as fast as possible. I think they skip a lot, and they never read anything a second time so they don't remember a word of it a year later, but they are profoundly shocked to see me drop a book in the wastebasket or give it away. The way they look at it, you buy a book, you read it, you put it on the shelf, you never open it again for the rest of your life, but you don't throw it out, not if it has a hardcover on it. Why not? I personally can't think of anything less sacrosanct than a bad book or even a mediocre book. So, yeah, she's got her usual, like, she has very firm stances, which makes her writing interesting to read. <laughs> you know, having somebody who's opinionated, has clear views, is always the best point of view. And, uh, yeah, it's an intriguing proposition, because I'm a book hoarder, though not to a, I don't know, not to a 
unwieldy extent. Like my living spaces are not overrun with them. They're all shelved. I don't have things like overflowing, which, you know, that could be fun in its own way anyway. And so what do you think of this point of view? She, I, I like reading her opinions. I don't necessarily agree with them, but they're intriguing. Yeah. So when I read that passage, I was like, I was a little like, surprised that she would throw away books because she loves them so much and and yeah she does make a good point like it's yeah there's there's nothing you know if you find a book to be boring or you find a book to be just like you know bad um which we've read a couple of bad books for sure um yeah like why do you keep it is it just to like hoard it or whatever and and it's a good point but i also just find it almost like sacrilegious to throw away a book even if you think it's a bad book i would rather sell it yeah or or you know donate it or something yeah because because your taste may not match everybody's taste and so somebody might enjoy that book and and if they have limited access to like funds to buy books then you know they could have this one (laughs) an intriguing kind of almost slight hypocrisy in her character which is kind of makes it more charming though i mean everyone has their idiosyncrasies and hypocrisies and it's just that she clearly knows and views books as these incredible delicate precious items to be held and beloved and to collect you know they're kind of rare in her time there was no mass paperback publication back then or at least not quite yet you know and so it's funny just because yeah she clearly understands the deep deep value but also is happy to just toss things away and so I I think that just made her all the more real though you have to have some kind of those hypocritical stances to be a real like a real person you know (laughs) real conflict within you yeah, I think it fits really well with how, like, I don't want to say, like, extreme, but how she's, like, all in or nothing kind of personality. Yeah, so I think yeah. that that really fits with, with that idea for her. I had a thought, and I, I'm certain when I next move, this is probably what's going to happen. I'll try and keep a lot of my books, but I know that they're they're a pain to move, and so I'll have to jettison some. I think my approach might be... Until I have, like, a permanent space where I can build up, you know, a little library or put in, like, big heavy-duty shelves or whatever, I think I might try and cut mine down to a 100. And just because I definitely own way more than that. So it's like, I think I might try and just do the ultimate test of, like, all right, I only get to bring a 100. What are they for the, you know, to repopulate the shelves? What are they going to be? I think it would kind of be a fun exercise. That would be fun, but man, like, It'd what, be challenging. what if there's like just two that you're like, no, I can't, I can't let either one of them go, and it's like 101. Coin <laughs> toss, just coin toss. It. I, I like arbitrary though. I I do way better, I think, with like arbitrary goals or just having an end in mind or something. Like, I that forces me to make decisions, which helps me, I think. So I, even if it was between 100 and 101, I think just even knowing I had to hit the number uh, would would help me personally. But I thought about doing kind of what she describes, but until I like physically run out of space or something, I just don't see the point in it. <laughs> I'm just going to hang on to them for now. And then at some point, I'm sure I'll do. But like a yearly cleaning like she describes. Yeah, I found it fascinating. It's such a little quirk. It's It was interesting to learn about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I also find uh, for myself when it comes to, to hoarding my books now, my, my excuse for that is, well, maybe my daughters will want to read some of, of course. these when they're older. Yeah, yeah, that's a good enough reason to keep a little. You got to have their bookshelves evolve over time. You know, they get right. their kid one, right. then their young adult, or like you know, yeah. kind of chapter book one, and yeah, different stages. Uh, another yeah. quote for you, Amanda. What do you want to talk about? Yeah. So this one comes from um, the letter from January tenth, nineteen fifty-eight, written by 
um, Hanf, and it's just about like her observations about the changes in language, um, which she seems to not really care for. Uh, let's see here. I'd love to have this in the McDonald's edition or any nice edition if it's capital R reasonable, of course. Nothing's cheap anymore. It's reasonable or sensibly priced. There's a building going up across the street. The sign over it says one and two bedroom apartments at rents that make sense. Rents do not make sense and prices do not sit around being reasonable <laughs> about anything, yeah. no matter what it says in the ad, which isn't an ad anymore. It's a commercial. I go through life watching the English language being raped before me face. Like Miniver Chibi, I was born too late, and like Miniver Chibi, I cough and call it fate and go on drinking. That's um, a reference. I, I looked it up very quickly, but um, there's a poem. That's it. That, that's a, obviously, that's why she's rhyming. But yeah. Oh, okay. I, d- I didn't <clears throat> even look it up. Yeah, so it's, it's a, I guess, a well-known poem. I've never read it before. But, mm. um, and what's funny, too, is, like, as she's, like, bemoaning the state of, like, well, she's she says that she's bemoaning, like, the changes in English language. Really, I think she's just upset about, like, pricing in New York, which, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, as she's bemoaning that, she, she goes to, like, the lowercase i for i english language english is not capitalized like she's just like having fun with like oh the english language is changing and what's happening to it and and she's just in in that same paragraph kind of like making fun of english conventions like the language conventions too so yeah yeah she yeah and she's got quite an eye for subtleties and I, i guess i found that section most comforting because the rent issue is just it's just a forever issue it's yeah. <laughs> every age that has had rent as a system of living is been there's just been people complaining about the rents and being too high and not being controlled and being exploited and everything her little moving yeah. saga was kind of fascinating too didn't they like tear down a wall when she lived in her apartment or something like she yeah she yeah i, I think we shouldn't <laughs> underestimate even though her you know she seems to have a decent career and is charming and interesting and but she's kind of living like a pauper as she described a lot of the book you know right right doesn't have real and furniture also, like no ikea yeah she yeah she's so that's one of the things that she has to spend her money on is buying real furniture um, yeah but yeah in the same thing where we i also found it interesting that this is like the time when television is like really coming into its own and right. so she says that oh they're not called ads anymore they're now called commercials and i just thought that that was a really interesting little tidbit and like indication of the times as well um, through language so excellent let's do some jokes because we just can't undersell it this is a this is a helene charm fest the the whole book is appealing because of her (laughs) oddities court personality quirks jokes and everything uh but on page 73 her friend gets one in too so i'm going to read one from her on 73 and one from her friend when she's writing about the five thousand dollar grant in aid cbs like pilot thing she gets to write about american history she says i'm starting off with the script about new york under seven years of british occupation and i marvel at how i I rise above it to address you in friendly and forgiving fashion. Your behavior over here from 1776 to 1783 was simply filthy. All, all caps, filthy, which is, yeah. She, of course, she needles them in that way. She can't help herself. Uh, but then later, she talks about how she doesn't like Beowulf and how, like, it didn't engage her. Didn't Or no, not Beowulf, the Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales, didn't, like, engage her. And she says, um, my friend told her, or my friend's college told her to write an essay in early Anglo-Saxon on any subject of her own choosing, which is all very 
well, she said bitterly, but the only essay subject you can find enough early Anglo-Saxon words for is how to slaughter a thousand men in a mead hall. And so... Which is great. It's kind of an interest, interesting assignment for a teacher to give where you have to use old language to write about a modern subject. I actually thought that was kind of clever. I'd never tried anything like that when I was a teacher. At any rate, yeah, funny to see that she also has amusing friends, which of course makes sense that she draws like to like or something. Of course, yeah. And um, just the the Beowulf comments too on that same page. I'm just like, yeah, Beowulf, I feel like... I tried teaching Beowulf one time um, in high school when I was teaching mm-hmm. high school. And, like, you know, there's parts where, like, he rips off Grendel's arm and, like, hangs it from the rafters and stuff. And But the language, because the, the language isn't modern, the kids were just like, what? what what's happening with his arm? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, it's so gruesome and you guys have no idea. Yeah, yeah, but, really intense. I I remember thinking that, because I only encountered it in college, Beowulf, and I actually never did Canterbury Tales until we did it on the pod. Didn't we do the nun one or the the divorcee? She wouldn't have called herself that, widower or something. Um, But I I was quite charmed by that. I thought that was really exciting, like excellent. I, I liked Canterbury Tales. But I remember Beowulf just being kind of easier to read than I expected. That's really my only memory of it. I was intimidated by it, but then... I felt like it was one of the, in whatever class I was taking, I was like, this is one of the simpler things to read. Doesn't mean it's not, you know, important or has depth or something, but that's really only my only memory of it. So I was like, oh, it's kind of straightforward. I remember from Beowulf specifically, aside from the, the goriness of it, um, the the listing of names as sure, you know, sure. epics are wont to do. So. Yeah, we rubbed up against that so many times before. No need to re- re-litigate that. It's just, it is exhausting. It's one of my least favorite old literary storytelling tropes is just the naming of peoples anyway. Uh, but yes, this was an excellent quote. I enjoyed her friend getting a little joking about the meat hall slaughter. And yeah, it just continues to, at the right point, dropping a little personality i think to get to ahead to again to the editing question or the structure question it's just so charming and i think it just knows exactly when and how to keep to keep her voice in things you know i think the the letters must have been smartly chosen i'm sure there's a bunch of duds that didn't get published but you know why publish them it's a smart smart collection here it works very well yeah yeah i i love the description of the british presence in america is filthy like (laughs) yeah yeah just the best So funny just filthy all caps i don't know how i get on with you yeah that's great um and for your final quote my final quote is uh from the letter sunday night and a hell of a way to start 1960 um so i'm guessing it's january (laughs) um and it's just her like comparing John Dunn and William Blake, um, she very much prefers uh, John Dunn uh, poets. Um, so it says here, so it's a book that is the complete poetry and prose of John Dunn and William Blake. So this is what her <clears throat> um, ideas are about this. Will you please tell me what those two boys have in common, except they were both English and they both wrote? I tried reading the introduction, figuring that might explain it. The introduction is in four parts. Parts one and two include a professor's life of Dunn, mit illustrations from the author's works, also criticism. Part three begins, and God knows I quote, 
When, as a little boy, William Blake saw the prophet Ezekiel under a tree amid a summer field, he was soundly tranced by his mother. I'm with his mother. I mean, the back of the Lord God or the face <laughs> of the Virgin Mary, all right. But why the hell would anybody want to see the prophet Ezekiel? I don't like Blake anyway. He swoons too much. It's done I'm writing about. Yeah. I'm being driven clear up the wall, Frankie. You've got to help me. <laughs> That's great. Um, I wonder if she I ever had kids. I love that little dig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's so good, because, yeah, I mean, William Blake is known for his um, religious writings and, and illustrations accompanying Songs of Innocence and Songs of... What was it? Songs of Innocence and Songs of... Oh, I, you're you're going to be lost on me. I, my poetry exposure was pretty low <laughs> in oh. my in my st- time studying. I mean, it was it was here and there, of course. I think the deepest poetry sort of unit or analysis I ever got into in college was for American modernism and we did like a Harlem Renaissance poetry unit. So that I feel like I actually have pretty wide like wide and deep exposure to the poets of the Harlem Renaissance or something but other mm-hmm. than that it's real spotty like a poem here and there. Even oh, okay. even my undergrad Shakespeare class was just tragedies. Like we didn't even read any po- any Shakespeare poetry. Oh. So, any, yeah, you'll get no help from me. I'm sorry. I can't tag in to give you any names of things. I definitely do not remember. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. Um, okay, yeah. But, yeah, I just, I loved the, uh, when she writes about her opinions about, like, well-known authors. Um, mm-hmm. Or children. It's just, yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, I just yeah. find it fascinating and I always get a good laugh out of it because she like it's a part of her personality she's got very strong opinions about things and uh, right. and they're always worded so so wonderfully so yeah it's it's the kind of nonfiction writer you need you can't have a mealy mouth back and forth ba- basically a me you can't have a person who equivocates too much or wants to examine or immediately jump sides <laughs> you have to you have to have somebody with really harsh clear and un, un- wavering opinions or something for it to be interesting you can't do the can't do the both sides isms or whatever with their her art opinions i just love this quote i remember it too i didn't pick it but i remember it just because it, she'll come for anybody you know she's making fun of the kid for having the wrong <laughs> yeah. hallucination it's she's just yeah she she aims her critical lens at just about anybody it's very funny yeah Children are not safe from Hobbes Pen. Uh, final quote from me, uh, page ninety-three. This is a. This is not from her. It's from Nora, and this is the. So this is after the main correspondence guy, whose name I forgot, because his personality doesn't shine. Frank. Okay. He's, I mean, he's a nice enough guy, but he's he's not really um, sending intense retorts. He he mostly just thanks her and gives her book updates and is like nice, you know. So he he doesn't on the page. He doesn't come through as much. Just a reliable Brit, you know, a nice fellow, a good gentleman. Anyway, this is Helene, or I'm sorry, Nora, her, her, his wife, after he's died. Um, she thanks for the letter and says, I only wish you had met Frank and known him personally. He was the most well-adjusted person with a marvelous sense of humor. And now I realize such a modest person as I have had letters from all over place to pay tribute to him. And so many people in the book trade say he was knowledgeable and imparted his knowledge with kindness to all and sundry. Uh, if you wish I could send them to you, she says then, at times I don't mind telling you I was very jealous of you as Frank so enjoyed your letters and they or so were uh, since it met his sense of humor or were, were so his 
his sense of humor. I also, I envied your writing ability. Frank and I were so very opposites. He's so kind and gentle and me with my Irish background, always fighting for my rights. I miss him so. Life was so interesting and he was always trying to teach me things, etc. This I thought was uh, very intriguing. I think a really good, smart inclusion just because it adds a nice dynamic to this relationship that on the page was, again, it was like nice, but not... We didn't get, I don't think we got that full sense of what she was saying, but that's why the inclusion is such an interesting, good twist of, of sorts at the end. Not in the plot way, but in the emotional way, the kind of relationship dynamic way. How did you read that? Because it's one of the final letters in the book. Yeah, it was <clears throat> when she said that he's got such a great sense of humor and everything. I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense, actually, because he does like throw some funny little quips in there from time to time. It's more more the dry yeah, British the dry way. humor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, as, as far as like the inclusion of that letter overall, it's uh, for me, the way that I read that was that it's like kind of uh, a wrapping up of like why these letters are important to for her uh, for Hanf to have, you know published them which is to give a sense of who Frank Dole was as a person um and and to celebrate his their friendship in a way yeah yeah and I think it solidifies that too it gives a great it's kind of an emotional send-off a little coda emotional coda on the on the friendship or something no I I thought it was a really smart inclusion and of course her being so honest in the letter is so essential to you know, to having it work or whatever. But yeah, no, I thought it was, it, it added just that little extra, I don't know, you're right. It's almost like a summary of what we just experienced or something. And I, I like that it celebrated Frank just because again, compared to her on the page, it's just, she just has such a strong and intense voice and his is, yeah, much more dry at times, even just, you know, professional and straightforward. And of course the other odd thing is, she gets thanked a lot for gifts she sends and kindnesses, and he thanks her a lot too, explicitly. But there's never, uh, does he ever say something in the letters to the effect of like, you're very funny? It, it's like, it, he never actually can, conf- I'm sure it's, this is why the book works so wonderfully well or something. It has this intense, it has this intense imaginative or imagination effect on the reader where it's like, I can picture him laughing at the letters, even though in the letters that he sends, you never get any sense of it directly. Like he, he never compliments her for that way. I think he just kind of says, you know, we enjoy hearing from you, but it's not like he gets to respond in letter form. Um, there's a certain distance or disconnect that these letters have, obviously, because that's how the correspondence is. You know, it's sometimes months and years apart and you don't get to see the immediate reactions. You just have to infer them or imagine them and there's a certain charm to just that structure it's like it like engages my imaginative brain in a unique way i'd never really thought about before yeah i think that's a really good point it's um especially since like these are people that we personally do not know and like the only sense we get of these people is through these letters so i I think a lot of perhaps our own personalities and ways of of interacting with um people and stuff like that it kind of colors our our reading of these letters as well yeah that certainly could be yeah and i just wanted to end with that one it was i thought it like a nice kind of emotional coda or something so who wouldn't be a little envious of helene's writing you know to have such a nice lovely voice in print it's (laughs) that's you know that's why she's doing it she's a pro gets to write some tv anyway um great any other quotes to discuss before we jump to essays 
Okay, next section segment will be the imaginary essay segment where each of us has prepared a outline response to an imaginary essay question the other person has posed. I Do you want me to go first because I'm freestyling? No, let's have you go first. I feel like the prepared person should <laughs> get to, you know, get to say their piece before I just kind of freestyle it. To be clear, I did not prep mine today. I've completely forgot to go into the doc this morning to outline my response to Amanda's question. So we each have a question and a brief response prepared. If you've never listened before, we don't actually write essays in response. We just plan little outlines and it's one final way to analyze the work. Um, Do you want to go first then, Amanda? Up for it? Okay. My essay question is a pretty simple one. I'll try and set it up, though. I felt a very nostalgic and kind of melancholy feeling when I finished the book. I think it ends... It had me feeling very down when I finished it, which is odd because Helene is so funny and fun. And there are probably several reasons for it that I want to address. I want you to address it instead. What mood do you think this book was meant to invoke at its conclusion? And what feeling did it invoke in you, either at the end or just throughout the book? Like, what is, What's the mood feeling from this one for you? <laughs> Um, for me, like throughout the book, it was nostalgia. And then towards the end of the book, it was regret, not not regret for myself, but regret on behalf of of Hanf. Um, so I essentially agree with your your feelings about like the mood. Yeah, it's nostalgic. And, and yeah, it's like sad melancholy there at the end. Um, so. The fact that it's letters really, I think, adds to the nostalgia because we don't write letters anymore. It's, um, you know, we just shoot off an email or a text message and get an instant reply. Or if we don't get an instant reply, like, you know, we're um, bombarded with feelings of like, oh my God, what's wrong with me? Like, why aren't they texting me back? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Um, Need the instant feedback. Exactly. <laughs> um, but just like the, the fact that the, it's old school communication like that, I think really kind of sets up these feelings of nostalgia for, for that particular time of of just waiting and being patient. Um, then there's also like within the letters themselves, there's the historical context of everything. The idea of like, oh, these were simpler times, even though it was like, you know, post world war two um but the, there was like the the rationing in the aftermath of world war two several references to that um the transition from the radio to television for entertainment and and also the fact that humph was like in the middle of it all and like we got to see you know firsthand like from a writer's perspective um in the field um uh, the pricing just the pricing of the books like man could you imagine, like, if you had, like, a leather-bound copy and it was like, here's a, you just need to give us a dollar for it. I'd be like, what? Give me all of your leather-bound books <laughs> in- right inflation now. Is, inflation is a heck of a thing, yeah. I, did you drive <laughs> it up in the first part converting the that to today's dollars? Um, The $200 we did, which ended up being, like, $2,000 or something like that, right? Okay, so maybe a factor of 10 but so one would be $10? Even a hardback today is way more than that. Interesting. So maybe the book trade has... Maybe we just make more money or something. Or, you know, not that we're swimming in it or something, but, like, I feel like books have gotten affordable. And secondhand books, that's the main thing, is secondhand books you can find for very affordable prices. Right, if they're not in great condition. But these are, like, classics that are, like, leather from great estates, so they've been well cared right, for. Right, right, yeah. Um... 
Yeah, um, so just the the pricing of everything, it's, it kind of adds to that nostalgia, the feeling of like, oh, these are uh, times gone past. And um, the, the lack of technology where she's like talking about how she prefers ordering via letter because she doesn't have to leave the comfort of her own home. It's like, well, now it's just a click away <laughs> with Amazon. Right, right. Um, no, Amazon is not paying us uh, to do this. But, um. <laughs> Get on the sponsorship, Amazon. Come on. <laughs> Gift cards for all. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that all the, just like how everything is kind of like giving us a, a time frame, a particular era in which this is written adds to the, the feelings of nostalgia. Um, the allusions to the great works and, and her just general great appreciation for books. Um, I think that adds to some of that nostalgia because like we do a book club and I think that, you know, book clubs are out there. Like, you mm-hmm. know, there's Oprah, there's uh, Reese Witherspoon has one. Uh, the big bookstores have them, like Barnes and Noble have uh, their own book clubs and stuff like that. Right. But I think that on on a, a a more micro level, like I don't hear about as many like groups of friends doing book clubs and stuff like that, and really talking about how much they do enjoy reading and and their real love for for the books and and what they're reading. Yeah. And so I think that adds to the nostalgia as well because it's this feeling for me of like you know these simpler times where all of your free time is spent with with reading um which was oh man i just remember high school like that's all i did was just read i did not socialize Ah, much (laughs) yeah that was my is is epigee the low point or the high point i always forget that word but at any rate i don't know i'm trying to use the word i'm not certain about but high school was my low point for independent reading the lowest in my life by far yeah i think i you know i was just caught up in other things school got busier you know classes are a little harder middle school you can kind of just coast just show up and coast uh but yeah no high school and my mom kept trying you know bless her for it she's she's a very avid reader but she would always leave me books and like put things i remember a couple in particular she would like leave on the you know bedside table just be like hey maybe check this out and i just really didn't i just was not independent reading at that time i i got way back into it in college that was when i kind of resuscitated my my reading life yeah i'm the opposite actually like uh. <laughs> yeah yeah my my college time was when i was like actually like i was like you know what i need to probably make some friendships i need to mm-hmm to go out and meet people because I was like I mean I was super shy but anyway um, so the 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 notes and the dog earring of books as evidence of love too I I find that is like very uh, it brought about feelings of nostalgia for me because it reminded me of like you know college years and stuff like that Um, and then as far as the the regret um, it's the the overall passing of years that we are witness to between Frank and and Helene where we you know the dates are there so we can see the years going by they have not actually met in person we also see Frank Dole's writing change so he's very formal at the beginning and then he becomes more and more affectionate um, and infuses more of his personality in the letters which I think is both um, adds both to the nostalgia you're you're like watching this friendship unfold, but also it's the it adds to the regret in the end. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then the reaching out to others in Dole's circle, where Helene is 
not just writing to Frank, but those that are closest to Frank. Um, and then the regret of his death itself, especially since she never got around to actually going to England to meet him in person. Um, in the end there, we don't see her, we don't read her reaction to Frank's death, which I find interesting. Um, but we do know that she obviously reached out to Nora and stuff because Nora writes to her. Um, but the the regret there is palpable, even though she does not include the letter uh, from which she herself uh, reacts to Frank's death. Yeah, the the build up to those. Well, the, the death, I would say, comes pretty abruptly, uh, which, I you know, is maybe purposeful. And, and also it doesn't go on for long after he dies, which I thought was kind of in its own way kind of sweet because it's, you know, their correspondence obviously ended in that way. And. But I, I found it was the England, the lack of the trip to England and how they there were letters, I think, very purposefully included, sprinkled throughout of how other people went. You know, she has friends who go. Frank references a bunch of times like, oh, there's Americans all over the Beatles. You know, people talk about the Beatles or there are tourists here who just want to see England for the Beatles. And so there's all this sense. And of course, there's constant references to it. If you ever come, you should come. When are you coming? And yeah, I think that was the part where as soon as I started to realize that the trip was never going to manifest. It, I think that's what set the set the cloud over me, and in, in a, not a negative way. I didn't like. I didn't think less of the book. It just really changed the emotion of it. How I was reading the letters instead of just being fun yeah. Helene quips. It was like, oh, this is a kind of a um, a distant sadness to it or something. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on the mood of the book? I, I think overall her voice will stay with me the longest and her humor and wit and everything. But there is there's something in the format that you nailed and then also just the especially the second half, how it builds up this trip that clearly never is gonna come to fruition. That yeah, it's a real melancholy feeling at the end. It's a real sour sweet kind of a combo, this book. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on the mood? All right, toss your question my way and I'll, you can listen to me freestyle for five minutes and then we'll do another segment. <laughs> I haven't prepared <laughs> sure. anything for this. Uh, we had discussed very briefly in the previous episode about some of the time jumps in the letters. There's like chunks missing. Assuming that some letters were intentionally left out, especially as there are obvious responses to some missing letters in the reading. How do the letters that were included work together for a goal? What is that goal or theme, especially when reading the final letter? So just kind of what is your take on the idea that this is a curated yeah. list of letters? I think let's do the smart and cynical read first, which is that Helene Hompf is the author on this book. She organized it and made it happen and got kind of famous for publishing it. So I think that Obviously, it's just a it's balancing her smartest, funniest, you know, goofy, incisive responses. Like, I think that to me feels like the number one structure and organizing principle around the book, which is you've got to get a good dose of her personality and like a good dose of her wit in her writing and everything. So it seems like those are probably chosen pretty intentionally. Like the you don't really go, especially after the first three or four letters, you don't really go more than a letter or maybe two without her having a, an aside, a tirade if I wanted to be, you know, less generous about it. But I, I enjoy her, you know, her wit and her critiques. So it, I wouldn't call them tirades. But you really don't go more than a letter or two without those kinds of things. And even in the simpler letters, even the more direct ones about books, she'll get in a little dig or a little revelation, little personality detail or something. So I think that structurally that jumps out the most, which is I'm sure that she thought carefully about, like, how do... 
how do I show my own, I don't know, again, interest as a writer, my own voice and everything and, and kind of show that off. Now, that's, again, maybe a cynical read because why wouldn't she want to present herself in an interesting way? But then again, like, she's a great writer. Why wouldn't she do that? It made the book excellent. It's what made the book really great. So I don't mean that in a, um, I don't mean that to sound as cynical as perhaps it does. But I do think that that had to have been probably her number one decision, which is sort of what things did I say that were kind of fun, humorous, funny, interesting, witty, you know, clever, uh, sharp. Um, that seems like the dominant kind of organizing idea. Nice, yeah. At least one of them. Um, let's talk about the nostalgia or the England thing, too. I know we hit this in your essay, but I, I have to think how the book ended that there's continuous references to the trip. Now, that's because she's so kind and gives them gifts and post-World War II offers her rations and does all that stuff. So I get that, why those would be included, the thank you letters. And there's also correspondence from other people who knew the bookseller, other people there who reach out to her and thank her. And I just think all of that now, looking at how it ended, is to build up that melancholy of the conclusion, which is just that she had these great relationships that would never... They never came to fruition, if that's even like a term I could use for a relationship. They were never realized or fulfilled or whatever term we wanted to use to describe this. Like they never had the direct connection or a meetup or something. And so there is that melancholy that courses through the book, which I found to be quite brilliantly fused with her own fun, funny voice. So that's the other structural thing, looking back at the book as a whole, knowing that from pretty early on in the letters that there are these references to, hey, you really should come. Like, we'd be happy to put you up. I mean, how many of these letters talk about logistics of like, you can sleep in a bed. Our kids moved out. We have a spare room. Like, There's all these details included throughout and pretty consistently too about the like easy logistics of how she could stay in England or stay with them in London. And of course it just never happened. So I I think that looking back to it now, that feels really purposeful, how it builds that up to then of course not pay it off. And I think that that, yeah, in the, in the concluding moments of the book leads to a real regretful, nostalgic kind of sad melancholy feeling. At least that's, it seems clear to me now that that was purposeful too. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Like, before, when you and I had talked about it, we had talked about, like, I, I had thought originally, oh, well, maybe they're just letters that did not come back to her. Um, and maybe they're letters that have been lost over time, um, especially since, you know, she's had a couple of moves and stuff like that. Right. Um, but, but I think perhaps it is more purposeful than that now, based on, like, having um, our discussions, the idea that they've been curated to to highlight a particular mood and to to really showcase the the burgeoning relationship between these two people um yeah so yeah the the emphasis on the end there like about <clears throat> visiting and, and not being able to and then also on the um her i just find it interesting too that she didn't include the letters of her um, reaction. There, we don't get to see her actual reaction to Dole's to the death. death. Yeah, her and we we get his wife. Obviously, I even read from that one, sort of a follow up on it. But yeah, I'm sure she wrote a very long winded. Well, you know, she's not really a long winded type of writer, but I'm sure she wrote a thoughtful, you know, condolences letter to them. I have to imagine, right? That's I'd be surprised if she said nothing when she learned of his death. So yeah, there is a certain. 
I, yeah, it has a certain emotional clip to it or an emotional pace, which are not two words that maybe go together often. But and by condensing some of those things, I think it lets the it almost speeds up the melancholy. And it, it does get back to that effect that when you read correspondence, your, your brain is doing this imaginative, inventive component, imagining reactions and things, because not everything's going to be written clearly in the responses. It's not like they can outline every thought or detail. So there is a certain space in the mind that this this format allows you to have, which um, I think people should bring the correspondence like books back. It was very clever. It was like, I mean, I guess with emails, it doesn't work as well. I know films have tried this. Have you seen any in the recent years, any of these movies that are like, it all takes place in a phone screen or like a computer screen? No. Yeah, there's a couple horror movies during COVID that tried this. And I think there's even an episode of um, some sitcom, I think Modern Family, where the whole episode is like a home screen of a desktop. And then it's like a person who's like, they click on a Zoom and then they click their email and then there's a text that pops up. And it's just like, so it's trying to convey kind of it's just like modernizing storytelling in that way where it's like oh here you're using a phone you're using an app you're using and all that communication stuff Um, but it's just different i think the the space between the letters the way your brain can kind of creep into those crevices and like again imagine reactions and use small details to build out the world or flesh out the relationship is i think it pays off extremely well and i think maybe leaving some of that stuff out is smart too in the end yeah it definitely works and i think the, the concision of the book, too, is in its favor. It's You get a ton of charm, a couple interesting little developments in personality, and, and then, yeah, the melancholy definitely pays off. Like, the, the feeling of regret or nostalgia in the end is strong. So there you go. Those are I would say those are the two big organizing principles I would notice or the kind of structural choices that, that meant the most to me. But, yeah, I think the, the references to the England trip stand out so much more when you finish it. So any other structural things that you noticed you want to pick up on before we move on? Okay, fair enough. A really lovely, exciting read. Shall we get some outside opinions, though, on the book? I think we should. This is our fourth and almost final segment, Critical Assistance. This is when each of us has picked a... I almost did a video this time. I I should do one again in a while. I haven't done, like, a YouTube video in a while, but we each select thoughts from an outside piece, usually, like, an essay or a book review, and we bring those to the discussion, and we talk about what other people thought of the work, get you some opinions that are outside of ours, and react to some other thoughts. Do you want to go first? Did you pick a a book review? I did, Um, and this is from Medium dot com which i think is a blog it's like and yeah it's, it's a like a blog platform yeah oh there you go yeah um it was super short i was like oh well that's fitting considering how short this book is um <laughs> so he says <clears throat> 84 charing cross road is a perfect example of why you can't judge a book by its cover its length or the unorthodox nature of its content Ultimately, what makes the book work is what makes any book work, whether fiction or nonfiction, the relationships between the characters. And for readers today, the ways the relationships develop are not simply interesting in themselves, but also because of how they happen. And and I thought that was really telling, too, because like when I was choosing books and I came across this one in particular, I was like, what a tiny little book but it says on there it's a beloved classic but how can something this little and it's letters but yeah it's it's the characters the characters the people involved in it the relationships there that's that's really the draw of this book and and, right. it, and she does it so well 
Yeah, the the relationship between them is amazing. I I still think I will ride for her voice carries it sort of like it. I, it just does not work without her. It it really. I think that his dry and sort of sincere, simple responses play perfectly. It's kind of a yin and yang. Is that even the right application of that idea? But it's an opposites thing, right? It's like a balance of opposites. <laughs> I guess I should just use a, a simpler term than the one I don't fully understand. But it's yeah, it, it's basically <laughs> like the, that they balance each other out. And I think, but it, she's doing the heaviest lifting in terms of just pure word engagement or something. So uh, would I read Frank's correspondence with his wife? Like, probably not. But you know, maybe that would be kind of a sweet thing. But it, I don't think so. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> um, in an age of instant gratification, Twitter and Facebook world, the often leisurely pace of the letters between Helene and Frank and later other store employees are a window into an era we will sadly never see again. Um, and it is kind of sad, I think, that, that we're not doing a whole lot of letters. Like when I was growing up, even though we had... Um, this will date me, but like we had AOL, yeah, um, yeah. chat <laughs> so rooms. We, we had the beginnings of of the internet. Um, the the letter writing, I still wrote mostly letters to like my cousins um, up in Maine. Oh sure, yeah, 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 to keep in touch, and and it was always just so much fun being like waiting for for a little handwritten note from somebody that you love. So. Yeah, um, and I like that contrast with that sense of instant gratification, which is hilarious because I feel like Helene during this time would absolutely love the instant gratification aspect of everything, right? <laughs> so, yeah, certain things I think certain things, but even she herself, you quoted this. She sort of has the classic refrain that some artists have, and some people have, of that she was born in the wrong time. That she this is not the age that in which she belongs, <laughs> um, which is kind of a I always find that. That line of thinking really fascinating uh, and, uh, and hard to unpack, but yes, that's that's true. Um, any other quotes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Helene Humph was a prolific writer during her life, but her letters in '84 Charing Crossroad prove that she may have missed her true calling as a stand-up comic. Many of her letters are laugh-out-loud funny, made more so when juxtaposed with Frank Dole's typically proper and reserved British responses. Their exchange over a mix-up regarding a Latin New Testament is priceless, especially given that Hanf was Jewish. I remember that um, one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Like she, uh, There were parts of her writing where I actually did laugh-out-loud. Like yeah. She's yeah. so funny. Um, and, and I like that he also... Um, points out that there is a juxtaposition there that really just makes her even funnier, I feel like. Totally. I, the stand-up comic translation, who's to say? I think plenty of writers can't be stand-up comics, and that's fine. Slightly different skills there. But the laugh-out-loud part, yes, 100%. I chuckled many times and guffawed many times. I find that... Have you ever gotten into stitches laughing while reading a book? I don't think I ever have. I don't. It's not quite like a movie or TV does it to me where I'm like uncontrollably sort of laughing. But there's also the social component to where, isn't it true just kind of for all people that probably the hardest you've laughed was in a social setting? Like, wouldn't it be weird if a person, the hardest they've ever laughed was when they were alone? <laughs> I mean, I guess it could happen, but it just so often is a social dynamic that helps the laughter go f further. So, yeah, I know this book did get me a couple times though, to literally like make an out loud sound. So huge, huge praise. That's That doesn't happen that often. Yeah, yeah, same here. Um 
And then the final thing is uh, 84 Charing Cross Road is at its core a book about lovers of books and is at the same time one of the funniest and most touching books you'll ever read. Those who have read the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, a novel comprised of only letters between the characters, will see how much that bestseller owes 84 Charing Cross Road. I am thankful their correspondence came at a time when people both wrote and kept letters. Such a book would likely never have been possible in the era of text and email, and that would have been a tremendous loss. Um, mm. I agree about it. You know, at, at its core, it is about lovers of books, um, and it is a very touching book. Like when mm-hmm. I was writing my scripted pitch for our um, book rec episode like uh, like all the book all the all the words that were coming to mind to describe this book it was all like very positive and like sentimental in nature yeah yeah. um sincere and yeah and it's and he does make a good point like uh, would a book like this even you know have the same clout um, through with like just text messages and emails, like I, I I don't think so. It would just change the format completely because what you have to play with with texting as a narrative device is that it's instant, and so there has to be the interesting way to use texting is to show that there's some instantaneous connection that isn't being fulfilled by one of the people. <laughs> you know, it's like they reach out and then something's happening or they're busy or they you know there's there are interesting ways to toy with it. We're obviously in early early days too. Letters had existed for hundreds if not debatably like thousands of years when this book came out uh and so like i think who knows if good interesting stories will be made with texts and emails and stuff or like instagram messages or tiktoks or who it's just so early to say who knows but yes this is a great example of the the charms of that format so huge praise Excellent. Mine is also con- not from a blog. It's from a website called The Writer's Workout, which from what I could gather is kind of a website designed to help writers if you're stuck or something. Like it's it's got like advice for writers, so it's kind of a professional website. I just kept I keep trying to pick sources that we haven't used. There there were definitely reviews from our classic sources though, like New Yorker, New York Times. I think I saw a Guardian one, so all those are available, but this I just chose a new source. It is a review by uh, Shrivili Rekka, and so that's again from The Writer's workshop. First quote, the book is a simple collection of letters written over two decades. That's it. There's nothing else in the book, yet it has everything. These two decades show the social, political, and economic conditions of both countries while taking us through the lives of the author and the people she interacted with. I thought that transition was interesting because I think it's a high praise to say it has everything, and I kind of agree with it. It's like remarkably deep for its brevity. Uh, We've hit two in a row like that, too. Piranesi and this one are, it's like pretty short books that do pretty astounding work. To transition into the social, political, economic, I thought was interesting. You and I were, of course, very amused by those details, and I think it really helps. It it definitely adds that second dimension that kept me intrigued, and like every time I learned a little bit about the world and how they perceived their own world was insightful and cool. But I just don't, I don't know if I would say it has everything and then open with that. (laughs) Right, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um... But I I do like that juxtaposition, the idea that something that's so simple and something that's so small, right? It's it's such a tiny book, yeah. but it does have so many of the elements that we we enjoy 
in writing for sure so, yeah and it yeah. accomplishes so much um and, and i don't want to downplay because i do think when they give some she has her insights about the tv industry and he has his about the book industry and they both talk about the war well the, you know the end of the war and the effects it's having like it it really does add a liveliness and sort of well no not liveliness but a sort of backdrop of life and it's like a tapestry upon which it's painted or something it's it's it works well i just i thought that claim combo was a little strange um next quote little by whittle she little by whittle little by little she wears out his reserve and shows us the happy man he is we meet his wife his children the owner of the bookstore other employees and even neighbor of dole the author sends some of her friends to visit the store and we see a few letters she corresponded with them about their visits i just wanted to throw in this is obviously just a summary there's no real opinion here here, but I just wanted to throw out the, I think the the all-encompassing kind of relationship sphere, what's the interconnected web of people, I guess, is something that I didn't, um, in my obviously in my own response to say, didn't really talk about much, but it, it does add that, again, extra little dimension of life. We don't know a ton of the other personalities. Like, they don't, I wouldn't say they shine through in their letters, kind of like Helene's does, because they're pretty brief and pretty direct and everything, but I, I also thought in retrospect now that it was sort of clever because it, it makes it feel like a real cast and that there's, like, real life happening around these letters, that there's this interconnected complexity to everything um even if you know stylistically again it doesn't really add much but i I think picking up on that is actually pretty important it's dynamic i didn't appreciate until i read that and i thought back yeah and and it is very much like it's more than than just um like a friendship in a lot of ways because they the the way that they're like trying to get her to come over and stuff it's it's like family in in a lot of ways mm-hmm. it's like she has a found family with these people even though she's never met them yeah yeah 100% final quote from this review um, what I loved most is how wonderfully the sentiments flowed through the letters to the reader this was the first book where I experienced the power of nonfiction in its purest form it set a high standard in considering my wariness I'm not sure I'd even want to risk reading another and feel disappointed by comparing it to the book uh, just small context there this review is kind of based on the idea that this reviewer again the name we look it up uh, Shrevili Rekha they, they apparently don't like nonfiction they like don't read any nonfiction so that's where the those thoughts come from at the end uh, yeah an interesting book to have set a standard for nonfiction because it's so skewed it's such a unique book it's not like it's a it's not like it's a research it's not like it's presenting a thesis it's not like it's examining and trying to argue something it it doesn't fit very neatly into any of the independent store book aisles you know like where, where would we you put this <laughs> it's not essays it's not you know it's not social commentary or cultural observation it's not really history though it kind of is yeah i guess like human relations i don't that's all the books in the store i think (laughs) (laughs) except for the nature ones but even those are have a little bit of human relations in it (laughs) yeah no i just i I appreciated the honesty of the ending here but also it i was like man it's if this is your nonfiction standard or if you're like i need my nonfiction to be this sentimental and human and you know provide this really basic beautiful connection and you know all the emotions we talked about today that it evokes it's just kind of like i don't know what else you'd have to i don't know what else you'd read <laughs> i can't really yeah 
there's nothing else like this that like that I've come across anyway. Did, so in your undergrad or master's work, did you end up having to dig into correspondence stuff? I remember having to do it for a couple of papers. I think a Swift Jonathan Swift one and maybe one other author where you have to like read through some of their letters and try and find some interesting correspondence that they wrote. So it, I mean, it kind of evokes that, but a lot of those traditional correspondence collections are pretty academic. They they don't they're not as curated as this. They're not a narrative. They're not trying to get to some cumulative effect <laughs> they're trying to be exhaustive and like informative and so but through that design it's just sort of like I, I just it i never had an effect on this letter on me like this one did I, I definitely remember some of the letters that i read were like charming and interesting and even revelatory but they don't have a through line this has a very clear you know through line and emotional core yeah the importance of editing guys um <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean and i think the correspondence ones i read in undergrad were edited to a degree they were definitely organized you know where it's like this section is about his family and this is where it's about his his love really or you know his romance relationship and romantic partners and so it's like you can organize it that way but they're not heavily curated to tell a tale and these kind of are in a sense so, yeah, no, I, an interesting quote to end on, and I, I applaud them for enjoying it as I did, but also I, I grimace at the challenge of, like, I don't know what they're going to read after this for nonfiction that's, <laughs> that's going to have the same effect or sort of, you know, evoke the same things, pull out the same things. So, anyway, but those are final quotes. Any thoughts on those? No. Okay. Um Nope. Excellent. Let's do our final segment then. This is the Lightly Literary Hall of Fame, a segment that we're going to change soon, but that not today, <laughs> but not not yet. It'll the next time you listen to a book club, it'll be I think a different segment. But for now, we keep it going. Um, this is when we induct one element from the story that we really enjoyed or appreciated, and sort of induct it into our you know Hall of Fame of literary well done stuff. That's you know an eloquent way of putting it. <laughs> Rhetorical accomplishments, rhetorical achievements. Anyway, um, what's your induction here, Amanda? Um, I think yours and mine are probably pretty similar. Um, yeah. Mine is um, Helene's humor. Her writing just, I mean, it explodes with her personality, and there have been several instances of, like, just me actually just chuckling at her jabs at Dole. Yeah, Frank, yeah. And I just so enjoyed her humor. Yeah, tremendous. I, I put her voice, but sure, same thing. <laughs> Half a dozen of one, <laughs> six of the other, whatever the expression. Yeah, I think it has to be, right? Is there really any other? I mean, I, we talked about some of the more subtle things today that worked, the structure, some of the decisions to include other people and omit things and yada yada. Like, there's there's little things to celebrate, but yeah, you're, you have to be jealous while reading it because she's just so clever, intelligent. She you know, has a voice across the years. Like you can connect with a person from, even though they didn't live in your time, it's just a real treat to discover a voice like that, that feels so human across the time periods. It's like, um, in the little black classics, we did that like ancient Japanese monk Kenko. And I remember feeling that way about Kenko too. I'm not sure if you were on that one. Did you read the Kenko? Um, yes, I did. And it's so funny. I didn't even think about, I was thinking about, we also did Mozart, Mozart and his, um, letters to his, his oh his had a yeah you're right his did have a slight bit of i think some of them were pretty bland but i remember a couple of them liking do we love that i can't really remember now but we i think we liked some of them because he was kind of snarky yeah right right right. (laughs) get off my back dad just trying to do my best man yeah little teen teen emo mozart no you're right i think it was it was like mixed but yeah it, it obviously didn't have the editing 
purposefully that the voice of this one did so right yeah definitely okay yeah i think we're in agreement it's a really incredible inclusion in the hall of fame so proud to get it in do you think this would crack the top five if that's the format we end up going with it'd be close i think it would be a real fight over this one yeah maybe we broaden it to maybe we do 15 percent instead of 10 five is tough Maybe seven? I don't know. We'll talk about it. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, issues and notes for a later segment. So anyway, we'll we'll debate that on a different podcast. Anyway, um, thanks for listening, listeners. Thanks for sticking with us all the way through the episode. Amanda, any final final thoughts before we sign out? No, I just I really love this. Yeah, and strong, everybody should read strong it. book. This one. <laughs> hopefully, well, if you've listened to this whole thing, hopefully you did. But if not, then yeah, go pick it up. It's very charming. Thanks for listening again all the way through. We appreciate that as always. If you could leave us a review, five stars on iTunes or Spotify, that helps a ton. Gets the podcast promoted and does better in searches and such so reviews help a bunch again on facebook and instagram we have social media accounts there under the lightly literary podcast which is just one word so search for at the lightly literary podcast and you will find us and you can follow us there we've got other books coming up in order do you want to briefly mention those amanda what are we doing yeah next up we've got the novel the intuitionist by colson whitehead mm-hmm. then we have uh, another nonfiction, which is in cold blood by truman capote and then we've got um, another, I think it's a novel, It right? is. Yep. Um, the Violent Bear It Away by Flannery O'Connor. A famous short story writer, but I picked it on purpose to zag, going with a novel. But she's very, Flannery O'Connor is super famous for short stories, so we'll see if the novel works. Um, excellent. Okay, those are our book picks coming up, so keep an eye on the feed for those. Check us out. We post the recommendations on Mondays and the book club episodes on Fridays or Saturdays when I forget to post, so <laughs> heads up, Travis. Keep <laughs> editing on time and don't put things off. And Anyway, but yeah, the, the feed's updated consistently, so check out the feed. And until next time, folks, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs> <laughs>